0: Welcome to How to Get Your First 100,000 Podcast Listeners, where we talk about the very granular how-to tactics, as well as the big-picture thinking you need to grow and multiply your listener base. My name is Luis Diaz. Let's dive in. Well, Dan, it has been years in the making, not in the making, but I've, I, I'd have i want to say since 2019, everyone, I've looked at your articles and been like, hmm. I'm going to reach out to that guy one of these days and interview him on, my, on a podcast, but I am just wanted to wait to the right time, and I wanted to figure out what when it was. So it finally happened, and yeah, it's been a while. I've seen you through, kind of grow from being on the Pacific Contents team and working with some really amazing brands, and now you're doing your own thing with Bumper, and yeah, I guess for those who don't know, briefly, I'd love to kind of cover who you are, what you do, what you're focusing, and then we can dive into these really fun questions I have around Apple and
1: ranking shows. Of course, yeah. And first off, thanks for reaching out and thanks for having me on the show. It's really good to be here. I've been working in podcasting for most of my career. I actually started podcasting as an independent and then started working here in Canada with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, so public media here in Canada. You mentioned Pacific Content, where we did quite a lot of really great shows with some big brands, companies like Ford Motor Company and Slack, uh, Atlassian, some really wonderful uh, teams that we got to work with there. And in the summer of 2022, we launched Bumper. And the best way to describe Bumper is that we're a podcast growth agency. So we help our clients think about how to move the numbers that matter most to them. Often it means increasing the size of their show's audiences, uh, but sometimes it just means more of the right kind of listener or more of a particular kind of listener. Sometimes folks are interested in increasing ad inventory or they're interested in increasing uh, the amount of time people spend listening to their episodes. But what all of our clients have in common is that they want to grow and they've got a clear idea of what number they want to move. And we do our best to help them with that. Love it. Love it. And that's a, such a huge need.
0: I'm sure like you, you've got the question of how do I grow my podcast every single day of the week? And I know our listenership here at um, on this show is hyper-focused and they're already, they're already podcasters who have been doing this for six months, a year, two, three, four years. And that question is just like a revolving thing that is like, you know, like I've tried this, I've tried that. I've done a little bit of this. I've dabbled with ads. So there's so many ways we can go with this conversation, but I want to kind of, I've got a handful of questions and I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you these questions because I asked you, because I sent them to you for like two weeks ago, but <laughs> just, I'm super curious about bumper. So I want to put a, I want to put a sticker on that and make sure we come back to bumper and, and talk about what you guys do and how you do it. But to dive into what we so were scheduled, our scheduled conversation is really, um, Going to open up with Apple Podcasts and ranking. There's a lot of other people in the space. Uh, I know YouTube's getting into podcasting. Spotify's always been, the last couple of years, been really growing and, and putting a lot of their focus on this. For you, what have you seen change in the Apple Podcast ecosystem, for better or for worse, uh, that's affecting kind of like the,
1: the growth of shows, uh, the shows, at least that you're working on? There are a couple of things. And Apple's team seems to be regularly changing, updating, and improving the Apple Podcasts service. And when I talk about Apple Podcasts, I'm of course talking about not only the app that's on iPhones and other iOS devices, but also the directory behind it and the charting system, the discovery system, the recommendations that they run, the web component of Apple Podcasts, which is a really big piece of this and a particular interest of mine. So The entire Apple podcasts ecosystem has changed uh, quite a lot. And I think it continues to evolve and in many ways get better. One thing that really struck me over the past uh, little while is a recent change, certainly within the last uh, year or so, in how Apple displays certain pieces of metadata, right? I think every podcaster gets to make decisions about their artwork right? What is the square series level artwork? They get to make choices about their categories, how many categories they want to be listed in and what those categories are. And of course, every podcaster gets to choose the title of their show. And one of the most striking things over the past little while that I've seen is that inside the iOS app on my iPhone, certain displays, certain screens within that app that used to show your series title, the name of your show, Don't do that anymore. Now, this is just one tiny little tweak, but I think it has some pretty big implications because once upon a time, if you were looking at a list of shows that were recommended to you, you would see their artwork and you would see the name of the show, and then you would see the author or the publisher below that. And what's changed is in those same views, now you get the artwork and you get the category of the show but not the show's title. And so that seems like a really tiny little change, but it has big implications for what I would call the product packaging of your show, how it appears inside search results, how it appears inside recommendation screens. Because if you have podcast artwork and the name of your show is not incorporated into your podcast artwork, suddenly you might be... (laughs) exposed to a lot of listeners and they won't know what the name of your show is and so i mean that's just one tiny little example of a thing that has changed inside apple's ecosystem that has far reaching impacts for the visual identity of every show you know where should i include the name of my show in the artwork how big should it be how legible is it when it's shrunk down to really small thumbnails so small change but big impact for a lot of podcasters. And this is why I think it's really important for anyone who is working in this space to not just use one app, but to use as many as you can possibly handle so that you're an active user of the platforms in the same way that your listeners are. And so that when, for example, Apple changes the way that artwork is displayed or categories are displayed or the title of your show is displayed, that you can then change and respond to it rather than having somebody tell you six months too late that they don't know what the name of your show is because it doesn't show up in the way that it used to. So that's just
0: one little example. So that's a great point because sometimes there's people who like, they treat it like a YouTube thumbnail, where it's like, they have a different title. They have a title that's in their, your author tag or their title tag. And then they have a podcast artwork that is completely different in terms of what it says, right? Right. And like you get that as a YouTube style kind of like thing that works on YouTube, but may not work really well on podcasting. If we're trying to make sure the people know the name of our show, other things that you've come across in recent times that have been that you've changed. And, and the second part of that question is, um, have you leveraged them or learned how to like improve the view visibility or discoverability of a show because of said changes? Is there anything like that that comes to mind?
1: So something that I discovered a few months ago related to Apple Podcasts and how their search works, I think this is really worth diving into. Apple seems to be, for not every show, but many shows, certainly the most popular shows, they seem to be analyzing the audio of your episodes and creating robo-transcriptions, automated transcriptions, on their end. So they're doing the analysis, they're generating the transcriptions. And what it seems to be doing is taking those robot transcriptions of your audio and then doing keyword extraction or topic identification. They're doing uh, sort of natural language processing so that you can now search for certain keywords or key phrases in the Apple Podcasts app. And even if that keyword or key phrase is not listed in the metadata, you may still get an episode result. Not because the creator put the words there, but because they were spoken in the main body of the episode, robo-transcribed, and then Apple's sort of keyword analysis or summarization or natural language processing tools basically said, even though this word doesn't appear in the metadata, it's, we're still going to surface it as a search result because we know the words were spoken or the topic was discussed in the body of the episode. This is a huge change. This is a huge change. And I wrote about this on the Bumper blog, and I'm happy to send you a link if you want to see uh, some of the work that we did there. And I think the big implication here is for any creator who's working in audio everything you think you know about podcast app SEO needs to expand because it's not just your title field and it's not just the author field. And it's not just the description of your episode. It's not just those text elements that you have direct control over anymore that influence the search appearances for your show. Instead, you need to think about every single word that is spoken in your episode, as a potential way to be discovered because Apple's system, and again, we've not had confirmation from them that they're doing this, but we can see the evidence of it in things like Apple Podcasts preview pages, seems to be they're robo-transcribing many most of the most popular episodes, and then they're doing topic identification based on that. So audio SEO isn't just about the words you type into a box. It is about the words that are spoken in your episodes. Uh, And again, much more detail. I've written about this on Bumper's blog, uh, and we've given some, some, I think, some pretty compelling examples of how creators should be thinking about this now that we know it's happening. Yeah, I've seen this and it's so
0: interesting. I'm just like, the million dollar question is like, well, how do we get our clients stuff indexed like that? (laughs) Because yeah, that's the thing. It's I'm like, I look and I see it and all the shows are all like really big shows, right? And for, for good reason, they, they probably deserve that. But yeah, that's my biggest question. And I don't know if you covered it on the blog or I don't, like you mentioned, Apple hasn't really confirmed anything, but we can clearly see it that some of these biggest shows, like you can pull it up and you see the transcript and they can it almost like highlights or bolds out the word that is the search that is relative to your search query.
1: And that's being kind of like
0: referenced and that's why it's surfacing as a search result. So, So yeah, very cool stuff.
1: Yeah. And I think what you're describing now is uh, the sort of transcript search, which is one piece of this. And what I'm describing is actually one step farther from that because, yes, Apple's system is doing those robo transcriptions. But in addition to that, they're also doing this kind of um, topic analysis, which is, uh, uh, I think, a pretty common way of doing natural language processing. So you and I might have a conversation about bananas and apples and pineapple. And those words could be spoken in our episode and Apple's system would say apples, bananas, pineapple, and also tag the episode fruit, even if the word fruit wasn't mentioned. So it's, it's a related phenomenon, but it's not just pure transcript search. It's also topic extraction based on those robo transcripts. So, fruit is just one example. You can imagine whatever your business or whatever your show is about, you know, that sort of domain specific language, same kind of topic extraction. So we could be talking about nuts and bolts and machine work, and it might be tagged tool and die, that kind of thing.
0: Right. Okay. So that's new. That's, that's something I haven't seen that, but I have seen the transcript thing. And that's what you thought you're talking about 95% of the time until you described it. Got it. Okay. That is very cool. Um, Do you think, and this is a speculative speculative question, but do you think they would ever roll that out to everyone? Or is this like one of those things where Apple, kind of like the host and guest pictures at the bottom of like, you know, the Apple iOS app, you have those cool pictures. It's like only available for the cool kids kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think what you're describing is Apple building on top of the open RSS ecosystem, right? So quite a lot of metadata for an episode or for a podcast series is manipulatable by the creator, right? You change the title of your show, you change the title of your episode, you just type in words into a box at your hosting provider. But Apple has done a number of things, and I think you're you're talking about you know host fo- host photography or guest photography or features like the uh, the sort of robo transcriptions or the topic extraction that they're doing. And I think what's you know, compelling about those is they're really nice features that can help with discovery and it's a better experience for listeners. But what I think is um, a little bit unusual and certainly uh, different than what we've seen from Apple in the past is these are Apple only features and these are not available to everyone, as you say. My hope is that eventually the same tools and the same features will be available for every single show. But at the same time, I recognize that doing natural language processing and doing, uh, you know, doing the kind of work that is required to turn an audio file into a transcript that's computationally intensive. And yes, the cost is going down, but it's not zero. And so there's real costs associated with processing, you know, hours and hours and hours of audio that's made available through a platform like Apple podcasts on a daily basis. That was my thought i
0: figured like doing this is is definitely not cheap at a, at a scale that apple podcasts would have to do it as you know what i mean so so that's definitely not um i could see why they're doing it this way let's see hopefully they change it and they hopefully they eventually are able to to roll it out to like the broader audience i can only see how that would be super confusing if you're doing multiple languages too so <laughs> i get the complexity absolutely yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> you know 60 different languages millions of episodes yeah. It could get, it could get sticky real fast. All right, cool. So, so you've been doing this for a while and I'm curious for you, from you, Dan, to see kind of like what is new and exciting in the podcasting world that you're jazzed about that you're like, oh yeah, like this is going to make a big splash and going to change a lot of things for us as podcasters, my audience. And I may have shared this before we got on the call on the, on the episode, but like most of the people listening to this are coaches, consultants, experts, best-selling authors, um, people who have a small, medium-sized business, they may not be a Facebook or a Slack. Is there anything in the podcasting world that's got you excited, that's going to change the game for those kind of creators that are more business-focused and are putting out content around specific
1: expertise? I can tell you something that I hope happens, and I'm starting to see signs of changes. And that is an increased sophistication among podcasters around understanding the true size of their audience. And I think we have Apple podcasts and Spotify and some of the other platforms to thank for this. I'll tell you that it's a really alluring delusion to think that if you have 10,000 downloads per episode, that you have 10,000 listeners, (laughs) right? It's a really attractive idea that just doesn't hold up to scrutiny right? We know that downloads aren't people. And we know that just because an audio file was downloaded doesn't mean that anybody actually hit play. However, our egos or our vanity or our desire to feel successful sometimes leads us down a path where we conveniently convince ourselves that a 10,000 downloads means 10,000 people, or it means that 10,000 people actually heard the episode. And this can be a humbling thing, right? When you actually dig into the numbers, and there are numbers to get at, but you have to work for them. It can be really humbling when you look at the difference between the number of downloads an episode has, and then you log into Apple Podcasts Connect, or you log into Spotify for Podcasters, and you see... The total number of listeners. And this gets very confusing very quickly because, of course, there's the IAB definition of a listener, which is really just another way of saying deduplicated downloads. And then there's real listeners, confirmed Apple Podcasts users or confirmed Spotify users or confirmed Google Podcasts users who have actually hit play on that episode. And it's sometimes a really big difference. One of the things I'm most excited about in the work that I've been doing and in the work that some industry colleagues have been doing is moving individual podcasters and podcast networks away from a measure of success that is so easy to game and so easy to inflate. I'm talking about downloads here and moving them towards a more accurate more honest understanding of their total audience size as measured not in downloads but in people or as close to people as we can possibly get and here's why I think this matters for business owners bumper we work with a lot of um, businesses who have a podcast and the reason for the podcast existing isn't for the podcast's sake it's they're making a show because they want to support a business or they've got a course to sell or they've got a product that they want to market or, you know, the, the podcast is in service of some other business goal. And it can feel really, really demoralizing when you think, well, I had 10,000 downloads for my episode, but the phone's not ringing. If you think that nobody out of 10,000 people heard your thing or cared enough to call you, that can really feel kind of lonely and upsetting. But if you realize that, no, uh, my 10,000 downloads, it's really actually 2,500 people. Suddenly your conversion rate from somebody listening, a person, an actual human being listening to your episode, and then doing whatever it is that you would like them to do afterwards, getting in touch, downloading a demo, signing up for a newsletter, watching a video, whatever it is that you're hoping they're going to do after you listen to the podcast, suddenly those conversion rates look a whole lot better because you're not measuring downloads, you're measuring people. And so I think this applies for anybody running a business that has a podcast supporting it. It, I think is especially useful for people who monetize their podcast, not exclusively through advertising, but for instance, through Patreon or Supporting Cast or uh, Supercast or any of the other uh, sort of direct patronage models, suddenly the number of people who are paying you relative to the number of people who aren't paying you looks a whole lot nicer when you can get over the delusion that a download corresponds one-to-one with a person. So that's one of the things that I'm most excited about, this increasing sophistication, even though it's painful. And believe me, I know it's painful but if we can get out of this idea that downloads equal people, I think everybody's better off. And I think that sort of challenge that we've seen in our industry, and Ashley Carman's done quite a lot of re- really good reporting on this, the challenge of inflated download numbers kind of melts away if we're measuring people to people, not downloads as some weird proxy measure for individual human beings.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. It is. It can. I think the conversion metric. If you have, like, you're mentioning here. If you have you know zero people calling you out of ten thousand, or you actually look at you know ten thousand downloads, and you compare that to well a lot less listened, and then you get this many people like respond and and go to the Patreon or go to the opt-in page. Your conversion metrics look a lot better and a lot healthier and like, okay, great. Now I get, this looks a lot better. Even though I have less listens, listeners that I initially thought, it is much, much more of a humbling. I'd rather have a higher conversion metric and less people overall than what 0.6% conversion on an opt-in page with 10,000 downloads. That's not very fun.
1: I'll take one out of a hundred over one out of a thousand any day. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So that begs a question, because I've done the pod sites thing. I've done the chartable thing. I've done done a lot of compiling for metrics. And the funny thing is, like we do, like I love to nerd out on this kind of stuff, probably like you do then. And like I used to have like a really expensive chartable account and got all the pixels and then I realized no one gave a shit until <laughs> so I actually explained like what exactly they meant for people. For you in your in your experience, what is the most optimal way of going around tracking? Because you know, you can use Captivate as they're the ones I use. I know there's a lot of other good ones out there. They have like the IAB, like listener metric. Then you can also go over to Chartable and look at downloads. You can also go to Apple Podcasts, like we mentioned. Like, what is the, I guess, optimal mix if you're a business owner? And like, what one should you look at if you had to kind of go Pareto principle on this and the search for the 80%? Yeah.
1: I I struggle to come up with a single one-size-fits-all answer because everybody's show is different, everybody's audience is different, and everybody's motivation for doing a show is different. Your business goal is probably different from my business goal. And so I, at the risk of giving you a non-answer here, I kind of reject the idea of here's the one tool that's best for most people. Or here's the one tool that's the right tool for every person. Because if I'm selling courses and I have a podcast to encourage more people to learn about me so that I can sell them a course. and Bumper has a really wonderful client who does exactly this. She's got a great show and her business, in addition to selling ads on the show, is selling courses, right? If that's your business... The numbers that you look at and the tools that you use to calculate how your podcast is serving your business look so different than an entirely different kind of business, like we make a show and sell ads, and that's the whole business. Or we make a show and we sell ad free access to our show and that's the business. Or we're a nonprofit or a not for profit and We're not trying to sell ad inventory. We're trying to get more people plugged into our mission and our mandate. And the real win is when people hear our podcast, get inspired and show up at our next meeting or pull out their wallets and make a donation. Right. And so, yes, you mentioned a couple of the tools out there. I am a big fan of both charitable and pod sites now both owned by Spotify and I think they offer wonderful tools for marketers who want to better understand the impact of things like paid marketing on their audience size. But I don't think Podsites or Chartable on its own is enough. I think the really smart podcasters that I know and the ones who are doing the best job of measuring success aren't looking at one dashboard. They're not looking at two dashboards they're probably, and I know this sounds horrible, they're looking at seven dashboards because every single one of those dashboards has some piece of the truth, but you need to look at a number of different sources in order to triangulate the, the real truth. And so when I'm measuring podcast success, I'm asking really basic human questions like number one, did we make something people want to spend time with? And my source for that data, it's Apple Podcasts Connect and Spotify for podcasters, because they'll tell me whether people are listening for 10 seconds and bailing or sticking around for the entire episode. So I want to know, did we make something good? Did we make something that people want to spend time with? And I go there. I also want to measure things like marketing effectiveness. How well did I send people to my show? Did I do a good job of driving traffic to my show? And that's where I would use something like chartable smart links or smart promos. I also want to know my reach numbers, not how many downloads did I get, though I do think that matters, especially for ad-supported businesses, how many people, and to get that number, I'm looking at a bunch of other dashboards and then ROI on, you know, my podcast in service of my business. Well, again, we go back to maybe a charitable or a pod sites. How many people who listened to my episode then came to my website or signed up for my newsletter? And so I apologize for not really answering your question here, but I don't think there's a silver bullet measurement tool here that works equally well for everyone. I think customized measurement that really needs to be tailored to your show, your goals, your business, and your audience, that's where it's at. Because honestly, a lot of these measurement tools they come, they go, they're hot for a minute. And then there's yesterday's news. And any advice I could give right now is probably going
0: to be out of date in 18 months. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's important. And I think had I asked myself the same question, it would have been the same, a similar response, right? Cause it's like, depending on your business model, different metrics are going to worry. Are going to matter to different people? So no, I, I appreciate that. I wanted to definitely understand. Yeah. Just what you've looked at. So that's super helpful. In just looking at what different platforms and which ones to use for for which KPIs or which metrics you're trying to track, which you mentioned a lot of them in there, so don't worry, that was that was a ideal answer because um yeah, I definitely wasn't looking for a, for a one size fits all. Yeah, don't worry about that. I've been there a million times. in In terms of now what that for most people, if, if you've been listening humming along with this episode, the reason why I followed Dan is because he's a great podcast marketer, and the reason one of the things I looked out, I looked, I saw you did different from everybody else was that you like came up with like different metrics that i couldn't find anywhere else like for example in 2001 you came up with like a podcast like a pie chart of like how how many podcasts are in each category and i'm like how the heck did he find this information And i'm like you gotta have like a developer or someone like digging in there but it was that kind of like cool stuff that i think if you have that kind of data are you able to you're able to look at the stuff look at data that i think no one else can or very few people can you can customize or cater your marketing to different things that the data shows you which is why I was like, okay, this is this is a great conversation to have. But I just want to know from you, as a podcast marketer, in your past experience, bumper, and maybe even spanning back into Pacific content, what has worked best for you? If you can look at one paid advertising method for podcasting specifically, or growing another show's listenership, is there one that stands out? And I've read some of your blogs, so I don't want to spoil the answer here. But is there, and it may depend on the client, but if you could think of some of the best paid marketing strategies you've you've had or done i'd be super curious about that And maybe another answer like there is no fit size one size fits all answer which is totally cool
1: yeah w- with that caveat that every project is different we do see some really common attributes of paid campaigns from one show to another from one network to another from one audience to another i'll start by saying that i have seen millions of dollars flushed down the drain to try and increase the reach of a show through paid advertising And when it doesn't work, when paid marketing doesn't work, it's one of three things that have failed to happen. It's either the wrong message or you've put it in front of the wrong audience or you have failed to effectively measure it. And the inverse of that is true. The best possible podcast marketing is putting the right message in front of the right audience and measuring its effectiveness. So bad campaigns don't do any. They don't put the right message in front of the right people and measure it. And the best campaigns do all three. And this is one of those areas where I wish two out of three was good enough, but two out of three ain't good enough. You got to put the right message in front of the right audience and you've got to measure it. Otherwise, how would you know if you grew? And so when it comes to paid marketing, One of my favorite ways to reach podcast listeners is through podcast advertising, buying ads or buying promos or buying feed drops on another show that reaches a similar audience. And I think we've all heard this. We hear in-network promo from big networks that are cross-promoting their own shows. There's a reason they do it. It works, right? And so if you want access to somebody else's audience... One of the best ways to deploy paid dollars to grow the reach of a podcast is to buy ads. And they've got to be good ads and they've got to be generous ads and they've got to feel like a genuine recommendation or endorsement. They should be a genuine recommendation or endorsement. The creative's got to be there. The targeting has to be there. You got to put it in front of the right people. If I'm marketing a fly fishing podcast, I may not want to put that in front of a non-fly fishing audience, right? And so this is why I really often prefer to do really targeted buys rather than spray and pray approaches or buying run of network uh, ads. And you got to be able to measure it. And again, PodSites and Chartable are really wonderful tools for doing this kind of thing, especially Chartable's smart promos product. And so paid advertising inside other podcasts tends to work well. I'll also tell you what doesn't work well. And I'm not saying it can't work well. I'm just saying, I've yet to see really compelling evidence that it works well. People want paid social to work. (laughs) They desperately want paid social to work. So many of our clients, so hopeful that if they can log into one of the social platforms, ad buying uh, tools, they can pull out their credit card and increase the reach of their show overnight. And I'm not saying it's impossible. I am saying it's really hard. And I'm saying that I haven't seen a lot of examples of people doing it well. And I have a couple of theories about that, right? I don't deny that people want paid social to work, but I think it doesn't work for a couple of reasons. One is when I'm on social, I'm scrolling through a feed. I'm looking at pictures of my friends, animals and kids and looking at their vacation pictures. And I'm really into guitars. So I like to look at like I'm on Instagram and I just love looking at, uh, you know, vintage guitars I'm in snack mode. I am in scroll and snack almost like junk food mode, right? But it's quick hits of little things. I am very rarely on social and looking for an in-depth, long-form audio conversation. And so to drop an ad in the middle of a snack-sized medium for a full meal tends not to work so well. And... If you think about any of the social platforms, I think about Instagram, I think about TikTok, I think about Facebook, I think about all of these platforms. If you're on your phone and you're in the app, none of the platforms make it easy to leave the app. They're not incentivized to have you lead the app or for their users to leave the app. And so what we want listeners to do, I think when we're you know paying to reach them is we want them to sample our shows. We want them to, hey, give us a try. And if they like us, go get some more. So if I'm inside a social app and I tap on a podcast link, very often what you get is a message saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you sure you want to leave this social app? Are you sure you want to open up your podcast app? And so you're swimming upstream. And uh, I'm just going to repeat myself till I'm blue in the face. I'm not saying paid social can't work. I'm saying it's really hard and I've not seen a lot of people do it well. And the ones who are doing it well have figured out a way to swim upstream, but an afternoon, a credit card and a, an ad platform does not make for overnight success. Despite the fact that people want it to.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. That's one of those things. I just, uh, you, you listen to all the great, really great reasons there. I haven't seen it work either, and yeah, a lot of clients come to us like, "Well, well can't you just run Facebook ads over your podcast?" I'm like, if it was that easy, we would have all been doing it already. And it just doesn't doesn't seem to pan out any like the way you want it um, whenever you do it. So, I, I totally hear that. And the paid, so I have a few questions on the on the pod like the podcast swaps. For me, one of the questions has always been lead time, especially if you're not working with professional podcasters. If you're working with other people who are like they're doing this to grow their business, and there's some there's some synergy there. How do you approach that person if they've never done it before? If you have any experience, I'd love to hear about that. And then number two, what kind of lead time are you giving them to say, you record an episode, I record an episode, we record a little 30 second intro or 30 seconds, sorry, swap. Here's what it should say. Da, 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 da. Like, what does that timeline look like?
1: So to your first question around how I typically approach podcasters, it is... Um, especially for podcasters who maybe haven't done this sort of thing before or are new to doing a a paid activation or they're new to doing a swap. I approach it with a spirit of generosity and a spirit of patience uh, and hopefully a a spirit of uh, trying to share something that's going to be mutually beneficial. I get a lot of email every day from people who are proposing swaps or proposing feed drops or other types of audio activations and it's clear they have never listened to my show there's no substitute for actually having listened to the show that you are proposing to collaborate with and this sounds so basic it sounds so 101 it sounds like the simplest possible advice you could give anyone Yet every day I wake up to an inbox full of people who have clearly never listened to my show talking about how they would love to be a guest on my show that doesn't have guests. And so whatever you can do to avoid the appearance of spam or unsolicited requests and whatever you can do to demonstrate that you're not just looking for a collaboration or a partnership But a demonstrated interest in and experience with their show, and I'm not saying fake it or make up what your favorite recent episode of their show was. I'm talking about in a genuine way, actually learn something in advance about who you are proposing to work with, and then again on the on some of the tooling, right? Like you can measure this stuff. You can use you can set up a chartable smart promo, or you can use other attribution tools like that. And I think all of that is, it represents a a pretty big learning curve for someone who's never done it before. So again, the sort of patience and generosity, I I would encourage that kind of spirit. Um, And on lead times, I, I wish I had a number of weeks that was the perfect number of weeks. When I do paid activations, the limiting factor is often the available inventory. So we're buying months in advance, right? And that number of months is simply to make sure the inventory is available and to make sure that all the negotiations have happened and to make sure that all the tracking that we want to do is in place. And so it's measured in weeks or months, not days. Um, But of course you can do a quick turnaround swap. I don't think there's a a perfect amount of lead time other than more is usually better. Got it. Um, And then you, are you providing the scripts or are you saying, Hey, um,
0: let's let you you come up with something, send it to me. What is that? I guess if you're trying to make this as seamless and better, I'm guessing you can do it for them, but I didn't know. Curious to hear how you've it, found it to
1: work best. I can speak more to the, the paid side of things. So you use the word script, and I'm really careful uh, about sending scripts for paid podcast ads. I don't like scripts. And I think there's a often a desire to have the person you're paying money to read the words you wrote verbatim, exactly word for word. People want that level of control or they say, well, if we're spending money, we should be able to dictate exactly what they say. And I understand that argument, but it sucks all the life and authenticity out of a read. And you are shooting yourself in the foot because you're not using what you're buying, right? If what you're buying is ideally a genuine recommendation or a genuine endorsement of the show that you're trying to promote. Why would you presume that you know a host's voice better than they do? Why would you presume that you know their audience better than they do? And so I don't like to send scripts. In fact, I don't send scripts. When I'm doing paid activations to try and promote a podcast, I send talking points. I send strong language that encourages the people we're buying ads from to customize it, put it in their own words, make it genuine, And I send audio examples. And so the ask is, before you read the ad that we're paying you to read, spend some time with the show that you're marketing so that you can, in your own voice, in your own words, to your own audience, sell what you liked about it and talk about why you liked it which is exactly the same thing the companies who have used podcasts to market meal kits in a box or mattresses in a box. It's exactly what they do, right? If you're trying to sell a mattress in a box, you send the host a mattress in a box so they can talk about what a good night's sleep they had. Why wouldn't you do exactly the same thing for a paid tune-in campaign for a podcast? And so that's what we do at Bumper.
0: Love it. I've got two questions here and I want to be respectful of time. So let's get through these because I'm really curious to ask these, which I would ask them earlier to give you more time, Dan. But number one, if you had, and you can answer this as short or as long as you want, but if you had a gun put to your head, hypothetically speaking, and you're given 30 days to grow a podcast uh, as much as you can, obviously within that time frame. what would be the things you would do to get there and in what order? Assuming it's, already you don't have to go from scratch to think of an idea and a concept, et cetera. It's mostly like the strategies that you would deploy to get there quickly.
1: I don't think this is a business or a medium for the impatient. And so if you said you've got 30 days go, I would say that is not enough time. And if you are in what I've heard described as panic growth mode, you're setting yourself up for failure. Right, we we get those calls from time to time. Right, quick, we've got to launch soon, and we need a certain number of downloads by six weeks from now. We get those emails, and we choose uh, sometimes not to take on that work. Panic growth is not; it's often not sustainable, and it's often not growth measured by the right numbers. So, I would say it's a pretty significant yellow flag or red flag anytime somebody walks through the door. And they've got a download target in mind and a really short timeline. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying those are not key ingredients in long-term sustainable growth and meaningful connections with genuine audience members at scale. If you want to do that, you need more than 30 days. And I don't want to tell anybody they're doing anything wrong, but if your timeline's that short and your KPI is downloads before anything else, I would question the timeline and I would question the yardstick. Is it really downloads that you want? So, so not to reject the premise of the question, but I, I kind of reject the premise of the question.
0: No, no, no. We can, switch, we can stretch it out. We, we can, I would say, so I would want to tweak this to say, hey, let's like, if you were given, let's just say a year. Because that's the metric I, I give a lot of clients. It's like, look, like you're going to need to at least sink a year into this. 30 days was a fun one. I forget which podcast I ripped that off from, but I'll have to go back and check with you. But if we were doing a year, Dan, and said, hey, you've got to grow this thing as fast as possible, um, or it'd be as aggressive as possible with your growth in this. Listers is a metric, not downloads. We're trying to get real authentic people to love the show. What would be the
1: things or the timeline or how would you how would you go about it? I'll tell you what I'd do first. So I've got a year, my first month I'm listening. I'm not making a single episode. I'm not writing a single script. I'm not reaching out to a single guest. If I've got a year, I'm spending my first month listening. And what I would do is I would become deeply, intensely curious about the audience that I intend to serve. I would make a list of the assumptions I have about that audience and I would figure out ways in which my assumptions were wrong, and I would go out and listen to everybody who's already making a show that seems to be serving those audiences. And I would do that, and I would call it research, and I would do it in service of not making my version of someone else's show, which is so easy to do. It is so, so easy to do. The world does not need your version of someone else's show. It does not need your copycat intentional or unintentional copycat of a show that already exists. And the best way to avoid that is to know what's out there. I I like to say that a big part of success in podcasting is standing out from the crowd and you can not stand out from the crowd unless you understand the crowd. I would spend my first month doing exactly that, becoming deeply curious and trying to understand the crowd So that I can make something that is different, that is distinct, and that is marketable in a distinctive way against the backdrop of all the other shows that possibly exist. And so I would spend the first month, maybe even longer than that, full on in research mode, which is not a sexy answer. This is not a fun answer. The fun part about making a show is figuring out who's the host going to be and what is the theme music going to be and how long are our episodes going to be and who's on our dream list of guests and are we going to write questions for them and how are we going to have a signature segment at the end that is not quite rapid fire, but sort of rapid, all those creative decisions. That's the fun stuff. And I, I don't want to delay the fun stuff, but if you want to succeed in this industry, based on my experience... You kind of have to do the groundwork. You have to set up the foundation. And that foundation, in most cases, is a really clear understanding of the audience, what their needs are, how those needs are or are not already being met by other shows. And then only making creative decisions once you've got a great handle on how the audience that you want to reach, that you want to serve, is already being served.
0: Got it. I love that. You know, my, I thought, honestly, you were just going to go say, you know, I'm going to go interview The Rock. That would be your first step. So I'm glad you didn't say that. Um, d- diving That'd into be that. That'd I would, I would like yeah. to interview The Rock. Uh. Get you a lot of downloads too. A lot of listeners. So I'm curious to hear just one last caveat or add on to this question is you're listening for, I think it stuck out to me in that what you just said there was like, I'm going to listen to understand the crowd so I can learn how to not be like the crowd of podcasts that are already out there. Because you're saying like a lot of carbon copies of the Joe Rogan show or Johnny Dumas and XYZ, other famous podcaster. That is super, super, super uh, helpful advice. So thank you. Yeah. And I'm excited to hear yeah, I love the thirty days thing. How you rejected it? I'm not gonna lie, I love that. Uh, <laughs> I don't take I don't take offense to it. I just think like, oh yeah, this is awesome. Um, it's good feedback. So, last question I'll ask you, Dan, is 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 what am I not asking you? Sometimes I get so in my head, and I'm like, my listeners are probably kicking me because they're like, damn it, you didn't ask them this question. So, what am I not asking you that I should be?
1: I think one of the most important questions that podcasters are asking themselves these days has to do with video. I've been getting a lot of questions about video. I suspect you've been getting a lot of questions about video. Um, and this is a thing that I, I know is on a lot of people's minds. And so I, I, I think we, we could talk a little bit about video, but any conversation about video in, 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 in terms of podcasting is is also kind of a conversation about audio. And maybe my strongest belief on video and audio in our industry is that they are related but different. And I think the people who are doing the most successful work in video podcasting or podcast video, and I think about people like AJ, who's running the the Rooster Teeth Network and all the great work that they're doing over there. I think of anybody who has found success doing visual content on top of audio content and vice versa. The thing that people who are successful at doing video or audio or video and audio together have in common is that they have a deep understanding of what video is good for and what the attributes of that medium are and what the platform attributes of video services like YouTube are. And they play to the strengths of video. Similarly, the people who are most successful at audio really get audio and they understand how audio platforms are different than video platforms and how audio as a medium affords different things than video does. And so I wish I had like a really easy rip and run playbook for like, what should I do with video? But at the fundamental level, I think every podcast needs to have a video strategy and that video strategy needs to be created with an understanding of what good video is and what video is good for and i said a second ago every podcast needs a video strategy i believe that very very strongly and it's okay if your video strategy is we're not doing video but don't just do that by default because video is hard or more expensive to produce and don't do video simply because you can just because you can record a Zoom call and put it on YouTube doesn't mean you should. And so, I don't know, that's, that's one thing that, that hadn't previously come up in, in our conversation that I know is on a lot of people's minds. And there are a lot of unanswered questions around what the best practices are for podcast video or for video podcasts. And I think for me, it's about understanding how audio and video are different, how they're distinct and what each is good for that the other might not be so good for.
0: Yeah. I, I, when I look at the Wondery or I look at like one of my favorite pot, I love history podcasts and I could care less if they have a video component. They do such great work on the audio side. I do not want to watch them. I, they paint the picture of my mind. So like, um, what's it called? History daily. History daily is one of them. It's, it's just like, we, yeah, so they're, their strategy. I'm pretty sure I'm not hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure they don't have an audio or video
1: strategy and they don't need one. So I, I totally, totally get that. Well, I don't know if you could tell from the outside that they don't have a strategy. Just because they don't have video doesn't mean they don't have a video strategy, and their video strategy could be we're not doing video, and I think that's fine, right? As long as it's intentional and it's thoughtful,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, exactly for sure. Yeah, and there's a lot of people I, I get this a lot in YouTube too. It's like, well, should I put the YouTube? Should I put the Zoom recording on YouTube? And I think you answer that with simply like, yeah, if, if just because you can doesn't mean you should, <laughs> right? So, so yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just last question is around the attributes for the so the strengths of video of youtube for example are that hey we can add effects to the screen we can add text to the screen that likely you're not going to get on a podcast like you just can't see it as good as you can on a video if you're you know on a video podcast so what are some of the other ones if there are other glaring youtube benefits that i'm missing
1: here that is a podcast you should play to i know more about the affordances of audio than i do of video i've studied radio and audio. And so uh, I I can tell you that when I think about what audio is really good at that video isn't necessarily as good at, I think about three things. I think about the fact that audio has incredible emotional bandwidth. It can help you and make you feel things. And I think anybody who's heard an especially moving story or interview on a podcast and found themselves, you know, (laughs) Standing on their doorstep or sitting in their driveway waiting for the interview to finish. I think, you know, you know it. So, audio has tremendous emotional bandwidth. Audio also has fantastic narrative bandwidth. It is a medium built for telling stories. And as you said just a few minutes ago, those stories can have scenes and they can have place and they can have a really rich visual sense, even though you're not using pictures, right? You can paint those pictures in people's minds. So, Audio has really high emotional bandwidth. It has really high narrative bandwidth. And audio has really limited informational bandwidth. And I think, you know, there's all sorts of podcast episodes that should probably be a spreadsheet or should probably be an infographic or should probably be a blog post. And so I try and keep those things in mind when I'm trying to play to the strengths of audio, what podcasting is really good at. I think about emotion. I think about stories and I think about dialing down the pure informational content, right? Could it be a spreadsheet? Could it be a blog post? Could it be an email? Could it be an infographic? Should it be a video? And so what are the attributes of of YouTube? I am certainly not expert. I watch a ton of YouTube and I work on YouTube a little bit through uh, some of the projects that we do at Bumper. Um, But I, you know, my first love and my biggest love is really audio and what it's great at. I I think we see that in the engagement that we see uh, in podcasting, right? We see what episode consumption looks like on a well-done audio episode versus how long you can expect people to stick around on a video. I think we all know what video completion rates look like and they're, I mean, they can't touch audio.
0: Yeah. Much, much, much uh, higher on audio side. So love that. Um, and the, so one thing I'll, I'll note here, the informational, the piece you mentioned with audio, that's so true. Like you can't jam pack an audio episode with like tons of information. Just, you just can't retain it all.
1: Which is not to say that you can't learn things from a podcast. I learn stuff from podcasts all the time, but audio privileges stories. And so you need the Trojan horse of the story to get the the learning in, or to, you know, you sneak the information in, in the form of a story.
0: Yeah, exactly. We, I forget who I had on here from the podcast host.com, um, blanking out his name, amazing guy from Scotland kind of came out here a few months ago and talked about like, you know, teaching like a lot of, as podcasters sometimes, we teach way too much in an episode and we just teach like kind of like one thing and like break it down as opposed to trying teaching a full seminar or webinar or whatever. And like you said, Dan, yeah, using story to actually make it stick and make it memorable and and get the point across. Dan, thank you so much, man. This has been really fun. Just some of your answers have been really, really all of your answers have been really good, not some. <laughs> um, where can people find out more about Bumper and also the
1: work that you're doing over there? We have an internet website. You can find us at wearebumper.com. We do quite a lot of writing there. I write about uh, some nerdy measurement stuff, and we write about podcast growth and audience development and uh, podcast strategy. So wearebumper.com. We've got a blog. We've got a newsletter. That's where people can find us.
0: Dan, thank you again, man, for just investing the time here with me and I uh, wish you an awesome rest
1: of your day. Thanks for having me. This is a fun conversation.
0: Hey, Lewis again. I hope you enjoyed that episode and I hope you took something away that's going to help you on your journey towards launching a top ranking podcast that get 100,000 listeners or more, ideally more. Now, remember, the focus of this show is to help business owners launch podcasts that add more profit to their bottom line and more authority and credibility to their name. That's what we're about here on this podcast. Now, if that's you and you want help launching your podcast and getting it to rank in the top 100 of your category or your money back, then maybe my team and I can help you. But hold on. I do not want you to take my word for it. We all know that you can go on YouTube and learn how to launch a podcast. You can hire a million different companies and freelancers and consultants to help you. So I'd rather you hear from other business owners just like you who have gone through our process, gotten the results and love what they have built. Check it out.
1: Once I hired Lewis, he helped organize the entire show, the pre-launch, the contest. We had an epic contest, which was all Lewis is masterminding and uh, his whole organization of how to do that. We had over 107,000 entries into this contest. If you're thinking about doing a podcast, don't think twice because the investment is worth tenfold, not two or threefold, tenfold, tenfold for what you invest with Lewis.
0: Only a matter of a few weeks, the podcast got launched. They also supported me through the entire launching process, how to communicate with my audience to maximize the results. And when it did launch within a few days, uh, we made it to the top 50 in two different countries.
1: Uh, We get about 25,000 downloads a month, and the podcast has literally completely changed my business. My podcast right now has 10x my business, and that's not an exaggeration. When I started working with Lewis, I was making about 40k a month. Right now, my business is making $400,000 a month, and I credit a lot of that to the podcast. And then when they listen to one episode of the podcast, they'll listen to another episode of the podcast, and then that cold lead will turn into a warm lead that turns into a hot lead that becomes my customer. Right now, I have 775 active clients, and a lot of those people found us because of the podcast. Luis Diaz is the man. He knows exactly what he's talking about when it comes to starting a podcast. He knows exactly what he's talking about in terms of getting your podcast to 100,000 downloads. Because right now my podcast has over 225,000 downloads and it's been about a year and seven months. I didn't just want to do a podcast, I wanted to do it the right way. We are at number two in the parenting category of Apple Podcasts the week that we launched. We're now hanging tight in the top 25. Could not have
0: done any of this without your assistance, Lewis.
1: Literally, I keep asking "Was like, how can I give you more money? Like, what else can we do together? Because literally working with you has changed my life, it's changed my podcast, it's bigger than that, it's changed my business. Louis Diaz, badass podcast growth expert.